Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular people welcome to this 113th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is denise and on this episode we're going to jail here in america we're going to a penitentiary that a lot of our listeners probably are very familiar with denise this has been featured on every haunted program out there it's considered to be one of the most haunted prisons if not one of the most haunted locations in America, and that is Eastern State Penitentiary. This was suggested by our listener, Stephen Fitzgerald, and we got a lot of research assistance from April Rogers Crick. This was a place that was built to help reform prisoners, Denise, but as we share the history, people are going to find out that it was a prison that was a horrible place to be. There wasn't much about reformation going on here. There was a lot of torture going on, I think. Before we get into that, I want to point you at our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I want to draw your attention to Mark Nixon, who heads up Shadows at the Door. Our regular listeners would be familiar with Mark. He read a story for us on our last Christmas special, and he has started a Kickstarter because they are putting together an anthology, and I wanted to direct you at that. You can find that over at Kickstarter. Just put Shadows at the Door in the search box, and you should be able to find it. We also have a direct link to the page in our show notes today. Chris Garborough over at the Curioso shared... A long-lost H.P. Lovecraft manuscript has been found out there. Wow, that is very, very cool. Indeed. So I'm looking forward to finding out what it reads. So I hope they put that out pretty soon. And poor East Texas and Louisiana, Denise. I've seen stories in the news. They've had a lot of historic flooding going on down there. There are caskets floating. Actually, I've seen a lot of pictures of them because one of the guys I know from Taekwondo lives in Louisiana. And he's posted quite a few things on Facebook regarding that. Okay, and we do have some comments coming in. So from Nicole Mercado Champagne, she commented over on the blog about the History Goes Bump podcast episode 53, which was Alcatraz. I have been to Alcatraz. My husband and I did a tour as part of our honeymoon. I took loads of pictures, but nothing weird or strange in the photos. However, when we were in the Alcatraz store, something did happen. To this day, my husband is still freaked out about it. He was looking at some of the signs for sale, and he was near some books. I walked away from him to look at other items, 
and I heard this loud crash and turned around and saw my husband looking at me with terror in his eyes. Near him was a bunch of books thrown on the floor. I asked him what did he do, and he swore that he did not touch anything. The books just fell on the ground, but they were not on the ground near the other books, like if they just fell over. They looked like someone threw them. The clerk came over and acted like it happens all the time. My husband still, to this day, speaks of this and still maintains that he did not touch the books. I believe him because he is not one to admit to something paranormal, and the look on his face said it all for me. Well, as we talked about in that episode, Alcatraz is apparently haunted, so I wouldn't be surprised. Frank Terrell posted on our website, Hello, ladies. I work at a warehouse for a living and I'm able to listen to my iPod while I work. I found your podcast on accident, but have fallen in love with listening to it. It definitely brightens up what would otherwise be a very dull and monotonous day. Love everything about the podcast. Well, thanks, Frank. We greatly appreciate that. And you brightened up our day. Yes, you did. Chris Mulcahy, I hope I said that right, emailed us. You may have already gotten an answer on this as the question came up on an older podcast, but I believe I remember reading about winter summer kitchens. If I recall, summer kitchens were often separate from the home in more well-to-do homes in order to keep the stifling heat away from the owners, since air conditioners, electric fans, etc. were not a thing yet. While in the winter, cooking was done inside the home in order to not have to go outside so often and help to heat the home. I haven't really heard anything about basements per se with regards to kitchens, and I feel like I've heard the house kitchen simply referred to as the kitchen and the detached kitchen referred to as the summer kitchen, but maybe that helps shed a little light on the question. Brooke Rainey over in the Spooktacular crew shared that the nightmare on Elm Street she had heard was based on a true story. And Bob Shearfield shared an article from iHorror.com. It says, as told in the excellent recent documentary, Never Sleep Again, Craven was clearly inspired by true events. That is not to say that the original script is based on a real-life boogeyman that stalks you in your sleep that all came into play later. Rather, the story evolved from a series of articles that Craven read in the L.A. Times concerning young men that were dying in the middle of nightmares. One particular case concerned a young man who suffered from severe nightmares and became convinced he was going to die if he went back to sleep. The victim's father was a physician and gave his son a prescription for sleeping pills, which he refused to take, hiding them beneath his sheets. After three nights awake, the young man finally fell asleep, only to be found by his parents in the middle of the night, screaming and thrashing in his bed. Before they could even get to him, he was dead. In the aftermath, his parents found the stashed sleeping pills along with a Mr. Coffee machine in his closet with a hidden extension cord. And that can be found over at iHorror.com, the story behind A Nightmare on Elm Street. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Bridget with two T's. Hey, Bridget with two T's. Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Heidi. Hey, Heidi. Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Alita. Hey, Alita. A heron. Hi, a heron. I hope we're saying that right. Whitney. Hello, Whitney. And Jen. And Jen. And we want to welcome to our research crew, Kristen Swintek. Are you ready to go to Eastern State Penitentiary? Yes, I'm ready to go back to jail. Here we go. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com.
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. And This Moment in Oddity was suggested by Toby Hessenauer. Did you know there was a Japanese Atlantis? That is how some refer to a mysterious underwater city found near Yonaguni-jima, Japan. It is believed the city was above water until an earthquake 2,000 years ago caused it to sink. The largest building in the underwater city is a megalithic stepped pyramid. The ruins were first discovered in 1985 by a local diver. Some believe this is the lost city of Mu, which has been thought to be just a legend. Masaki Kimura is a marine geologist who has studied the site for 15 years. He claims that the stone appears to have quarry marks and etchings that could only have been made by humans. He has identified 15 structures, including five temples, a large stadium, a triumphant arch, and a castle. He even claims that there are formations that seem to resemble animals and that a relief feature in a cow-like creature is on the wall of the structure. The Japanese government has done nothing to preserve the site or draw attention to it because there is some controversy over whether this really is an underwater city. And therein lies part of the mystery. Not only is the city itself and whoever created it a mystery, but there are those who claim that the city is actually just a result of natural formations. Some scientists claim that earthquakes and tsunamis could have helped shape the sandstone under the water so that it appears to be man-made. Whether it is man-made or natural-made is still up for debate. But if this truly is the remains of some Atlantis-like ancient city, that would certainly be odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History This Day in History is brought to us by Stephen Pappas. On this day, March 20th in 1899, Martha M. Place became the first woman to be executed by electric chair. Born September 18, 1849, Martha was a typical girl. At the age of 23, she suffered a blow to the head, which her brother said she never fully recovered from. She became unstable. She eventually married William Place in 1893. She was said to be jealous of her new stepdaughter, Ida, and the police were called on multiple occasions when Martha became violent. In February of 1898, William was attacked by Martha, who was wielding an axe. He managed to escape and go for help, but Ida was killed by Martha. Martha then tried to commit suicide by starting a gas leak, but was hospitalized and arrested. She pleaded innocent, but was found guilty and sentenced to death by electric chair. She was the third woman to be sentenced to death by this method, but because of the brutality of her crime, was the first for whom the sentence was carried out. You're listening to History Goes Bump! Eastern State Penitentiary was built to start a reformation when it came to America's penal system. Prison was making the move from a place of punishment to a place of reform. 
Eastern State became the most expensive building in America when it was built in the late 1800s, and it was the most famous prison in the world. Al Capone even spent some time here. Officers and inmates have reported haunting activity for decades at the prison, and this activity seems to have only increased since the penitentiary was closed to inmates for good. The reputation of the prison makes it a perfect place for the haunted house attraction it becomes every Halloween. But the ghosts here are very real. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Eastern State Penitentiary. The period after the American Revolution was considered a time of enlightenment in America. Great American thinkers like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, Thomas Paine, and Benjamin Franklin were challenging traditional beliefs when it came to religion, science, and politics. Six major ideas to come out of the Enlightenment were deism, conservatism, liberalism, toleration, republicanism, and scientific progress. The adoption of rational and humanistic principles developed during the Enlightenment affected prison reform and design. As we know from previous podcasts on prisons, many of these institutions were basically large holding pens, where all genders and ages were thrown in together. Abuse by prison guards was the norm. With prison reform came changes to the American prison system. And Denise, when it comes to Eastern State Penitentiary, this is going to become the model that is going to be used internationally. A lot of jails are going to be built in the same kind of design where you have a central hub and these spoking, like the wheels of a spoke coming out that are the cell block. As we've talked about with a lot of the prisons that we've featured, there was this thing called silence and the silent treatment. And Eastern State Penitentiary is where a lot of these ideas got started. Okay, and you're talking about the hub system. It's kind of like Walt Disney World. (laughs) That's true. Oh no, I work at a prison! The Magic Kingdom is set up like a hub with spokes coming off of it. But they're much more magical than what we're going to share with you in today's episode. Indeed. In 1829, the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons opened Eastern State Penitentiary, an experiment in correcting behavior through solitary confinement and reform instead of punishment. The society began in 1787 and met in the house of Benjamin Franklin. The group was led by Benjamin Rush, and he expressed a desire that the group make a goal of having Philadelphia become the place known internationally for prison reform. The group believed that causing prisoners to have penitent hearts would lead them to reforming. That is why this prison was called a penitentiary. Advocates for the system believed that if inmates were left alone for long enough away from the dirty outside world, a criminal's innate morality would prevail and straighten them out. Easter State was considered the world's first true penitentiary. Its system of incarceration was considered revolutionary, dubbed the Pennsylvania System, or separate system. Inmates were held in separate confinement as a form of rehabilitation. The warden was legally required to visit every inmate every day, and the overseers were mandated to see each inmate three times a day. Eastern State was designed by John Haviland and opened its doors on October 25, 1829. Originally, inmates were to be housed in cells that could only be accessed by entering through a small exercise yard attached to the back of the prison. A small portal just large enough to pass meals opened onto the cell blocks. This design proved impractical, and in the middle of construction, cell construction was changed to allow prisoners to enter and leave the cell blocks through metal doors that were covered by a heavy wooden door to filter out noise. The halls were designed to have the feel of a church. 
It was believed by some that the doors were built small so that prisoners would have a harder time getting out, thus minimizing an attack on a security guard. Others have explained that the small doors forced the prisoners to bow while entering their cell. This design forced the appearance of penance and ties to the religious inspiration of the prisons. The cells were made of concrete with a single glass skylight representing the eye of God, suggesting to the prisoners that God was always watching them. Fear was a key to instilling in a prisoner a desire to never return to jail. Early prisoners were petty criminals, muggers, purse snatchers, pickpockets, burglars, etc. First-time offenders often only served two years. Eastern State was intended to move the criminal towards spiritual reflection and change, and not simply punishment. Proponents of the system believe that the criminals, if exposed in silence to the thoughts of their behavior and the ugliness of their crimes, they would become penitent. It's kind of like when your parents would tell you, go to your room and think about what you just did. Exactly, or time out. Exactly, it's kind of the same thing. Or some people had to put their nose in a corner and cry tears on the wall. Yeah, that would be my sister. (laughs) We won't mention any names, though. (laughs) There was an individual area for exercise outside each cell. High walls enclosed each yard so the prisoners could not communicate. Exercise time was synchronized so that no two prisoners next to each other would be out at the same time. Prisoners were allowed to garden and to keep pets in their exercise yards. A hood was placed over the head of the prisoner by a guard when he left his cell. This was to prevent the prisoners from recognizing one another. Each individual cell had a faucet with running water over a flush toilet, as well as curved pipes along part of one wall, which served as central heating during the winter months. Hot water would run through the pipes to keep the cells reasonably heated. Toilets were remotely flushed twice a week by the guards of the cell block. The original design of the building was for seven one-story cell blocks, but by the time cell block three was completed, the prison was already over capacity. It's interesting to consider how things went here at Eastern State versus how prisons are now. On one hand, when we watch our modern-day prisons, you see that they form these gangs and groups and that kind of thing, and they get into these fights, and we've had people who get killed in jail. But on the flip side, you know, just from experience and as we've watched over all these years, when you take a human being and separate them away from other human beings and put them in this kind of solitary confinement and no contact really with the outside world, what does that tend to do to people? Tends to make them a little bit crazy. Exactly. Crazy. So I don't know if they just didn't understand that at that time, that basically you're taking these people that you want to reform and making them nuts. Well, there's a couple of things they could have actually been going towards because there was a lot of the monks would do that where it was a time of reflection and that's when you got enlightenment. And they probably didn't know at the time, but they've done studies on back when there was a lot of orphanages in Russia and the children, the little babies and the children in there got no no physical touch. Some of those kids aren't reachable today. Like they they don't do not and cannot connect to another human being from that solitary and isolation. So what you're doing is taking a criminal and then making it so they can't connect at an emotional level. That almost seems like you'd end up with a sociopath or, or worse. I don't know. Sure. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit Credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. All subsequent cell blocks had two floors. Toward the end, cell blocks 14 and 15 were hastily built due to overcrowding. They were built and designed by prisoners. Cell block 15 was for the worst behaved prisoners and the guards were gated off from them entirely. Inmates were punished with the individual treatment system. At the time, this form of punishment was thought to be most effective. Due to overcrowding, the solitary confinement system eventually collapsed because you just couldn't put one person in one cell. It just wouldn't work when you have so many prisoners. By 1913, Eastern State officially abandoned the solitary system and operated as a congregate prison until it closed in 1970. After a riot at Holmesburg Prison in 1971, Eastern State was used briefly to house city inmates. Eastern State was one of the largest public works in the early days of the United States. The reality of Eastern State was anything but reformatory. The guards and counselors designed a variety of physical and psychological torture regiments for various infractions. Prisoners would be doused in freezing water outside during winter months. The iron gag was an iron collar strapped around the tongue and chained to the inmate's wrist in a fashion such that struggling against the chains would cause the tongue to tear. Many inmates bled to death during the punishment. Other prisoners were strapped into the mad chair with tight leather restraints that prevented any movement and cut off circulation for days on end and given no food. The worst behaved prisoners were put into a pit called the hole, which was an underground cell dug under cell block 14 where they would have no light, no human contact, and little food for as long as two weeks at a time. Isn't it interesting that all of these prisons basically call their section that's set up that way the hole? I know. It's come up many, many times when we've been doing prisons. In the 19th century, Eastern State was a tourist destination. Charles Dickens and Alexis de Tocqueville were two of the most notable visitors. Visitors were able to speak with prisoners in their cells, proving the inmates were not isolated. However, prisoners themselves were not allowed to have any visits from family or friends during their incarceration. In 1831, after visiting Eastern State, Alexis de Tocqueville and Gustave de Beaumont wrote in their report to the French government, quote, Thrown into solitude, the prisoner reflects. Placed alone in view of his crime, he learns to hate it. And if his soul be not yet surfeited with crime, and thus have lost all taste for anything better, it is in solitude where remorse will come to assail him. Can there be a combination more powerful for reformation than that of a prison which hands over the prisoner to all the trials of solitude, leads him through reflection to remorse, through religion to hope, makes him industrious by the burden of idleness? End quote. Charles Dickens did not agree. He visited Eastern State in 1842, and in Chapter 7 of his travel journal, American Notes for General Circulation, Dickens writes, Quote, in its intention, I am well convinced that it is kind, humane, and meant for reformation. But I am persuaded that those who designed this system of prison discipline and those benevolent gentlemen who carry it to execution do not know what it is that they are doing. I hold the slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body, and because its ghastly signs and tokens are not so palpable to the eye, and it exhorts few cries that human ears can hear. Therefore, I the more denounce it as a secret punishment in which slumbering humanity is not roused up to stay, end quote. Some of America's most notorious criminals were held at Eastern State. Gangster Al Capone, Scarface, found himself in front of a judge for the first time in May 1929 
and was sentenced to one year in Eastern State for a concealed weapons charge. He spent most of that sentence in relative comfort. Capone was allowed to furnish his cell with antique furniture, oriental rugs, oil paintings, and a cabinet radio. He was allowed special privileges, like being allowed to conduct business through the warden. There was also Morris the Rabbi Bulber. He was the leader of an arsenic murder ring. People referred to him as a veteran witch doctor and compounder of charms. I don't know that making arsenic is really a charm. I wouldn't consider that one of my herbal remedies at all. Their main clientele were women who wanted to kill their husbands for insurance money, of course. (laughs) The group had killed 30 people. The rabbi was serving a life sentence at Eastern State. Leo Callahan was arrested for assault and battery with intent to kill. He was the only inmate to successfully escape Eastern State and stay at large. He was never recaptured. He used a makeshift wooden ladder to accomplish this feat. The five Buzzard brothers all served time at the prison. Joe Buzzard was one of the best horse thieves in the country. And at one time, horse thievery was the main crime that people were in that prison for. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting to think back to that? There were women at the prison for a 100 years. And Frida Frost was the last woman at the jail. She had poisoned her husband and killed him. So apparently she and the rabbi would have gotten along. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. So the person who helped her with that little feat was probably in the next cell. <laughs> it's just interesting to hear something called the arsenic murder ring. Bank robber Slick Willie Sutton was apprehended on February 5th, 1934 and sentenced to serve 25 to 50 years in Eastern State for the machine gun robbery of the Corn Exchange Bank in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On April 3rd, 1945, Sutton was one of 12 convicts who escaped the institution through a tunnel. Sutton was recaptured the same day by Philadelphia police officers. This had been his fifth escape attempt at Eastern State. Willie Sutton claimed to be the mastermind of the tunnel escape. The truth is that the escape was planned and largely executed by Clarence Kleine, Kleindentz, a plasterer, stonemason, burglar, and forger who looked like a young Frank Sinatra and had a reputation as a first-rate prison scavenger. Willie Sutton said, quote, If you give Kleine two weeks, he could give you Ava Gardner. If you give Kleine a year, he could get you out of prison, end quote. I wonder how Ava Gardner feels like feels <laughs> being pulled into that quote. <laughs> yeah, like something out of the Shawshank Redemption. The escapees used spoons and flattened cans as shovels and picks. The tunnel crew who worked in two-man teams for 30-minute shifts slowly dug a 31-inch opening through the wall of cell 68. They then dug 12 feet straight down into the ground and another 100 feet out beyond the walls of the prison. They removed dirt by concealing it in their pockets and scattering it in the exercise yard. They shorted up with scaffolding, illuminated, and even ventilated the tunnel. At about the halfway point, it linked up with the prison's brick sewer system and the crew created a working connection between the two pipelines to deposit their waste while ensuring the noxious fumes were kept out of the tunnel. The tunnel escaped inspection several times thanks to a false panel Kleine treated to match the plaster of the cell and concealed by a metal waste basket. I mean, it says how they got the dirt out, but where did they get all the material to mask things that well when it's being inspected? That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, how do you make plaster? And this tunnel was amazing. I mean, it looked like something that had been constructed. You know, when you think about people digging a tunnel, you think of kind of a round hole that just has dirt all around and you're kind of hoping it doesn't collapse on you. 
this thing was like as if it had been built by professionals with the lighting and everything in there. So they really knew what they were doing. After months of painfully slow labor, the tunnel was ready. On the morning of April 3rd, 1945, the 12 prisoners made their escape, sneaking off to cell 68 on their way to breakfast. After all the designing, carving, digging, and building, Kleine made it a whole three hours before getting caught. He'd fared better than Sutton, who was free for only three minutes. By the end of the day, half the escapees were returned to the prison while the rest were caught within a couple months. The first few escapees to be captured, including Sutton, were put in the Klondikes. The Klondikes were illegal confinement cells that were completely dark and had been secretly built by guards in the mechanical space below one of the cell blocks. These spaces were miserable, tiny holes that weren't big enough to stand up in or wide enough to lie down. The tunnel itself was analyzed and mapped, and then the guards filled it with ash and covered it with cement. Until 2005, the location of the tunnel was lost. A nonprofit dedicated to preserving the landmark prison completed an archaeological survey to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the escape. To find the tunnel, the group created a search grid over the prison grounds near the entrance, the location of which was known from old photos. Using ground-penetrating radar, the team was able to create vertical sections through the site in increments corresponding to the suspected width of the tunnel. After a couple of failed attempts, the archaeologists detected a section of the tunnel that hadn't collapsed and hadn't been filled in by the guards. A year later, a robotic rover was sent through the tunnels, documenting its scaffolding and lighting systems. Can you imagine spending all those months patiently digging out that tunnel, taking the dirt outside and shaking it out onto the prison grounds. And then the main guy who was heading it was captured within three hours. And Sutton, what did it say? He was out for basically three minutes. Three minutes. <laughs> Can you imagine all that work and it's nothing? Yep, and that would drive you majorly crazy because you hate it when people waste your time. And I have no patience. So <laughs> I don't know that I could have waited all that long to dig it out. I would have eventually just hacked at it and they would have discovered it earlier. <laughs> Although there were riots in 1919, 1924, and 1923, it was the riot of 1942 that saw a loss of life. All the riots were started due to a lack of quality food and poor conditions, and the inmates were demanding better. In 1942, Eastern State instituted a cutback of food items, some of which included sugar and coffee. Because of these reductions, some of the inmates started to protest. During the meal periods, inmates implemented their own form of a hunger strike by refusing to eat anything but coffee. There, There's a diet for you, Denise. Hey, it's kind of my normal start of my morning. It is. When their demands were not met, mattresses were set afire and the riot began. Because of heavy rain, smoke from the fire was driven down the ventilation shaft to where an inmate named Joseph Ansensky was lying and asphyxiated him. Two more inmates were overcome by the fire and one was killed during the riot. By the 1960s, Eastern State was in very bad shape. The cost of repair was too high, and by 1970, the doors were closed. The city of Philadelphia bought Eastern State in 1980 and planned to refurbish and repurpose the building. That was unsuccessful, and the Pennsylvania Prison Society took over the prison in 1994 and opened it for tours. In 1997, it was turned into a museum. Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site, Incorporated, took over management in 2001. Every Halloween, the prison is opened as a haunted house attraction. Many people believe that Eastern State is haunted. As early as the 1940s, guards and inmates reported mysterious visions and eerie experiences. 
The reports have only increased since the closing in 1970. Smith, and I believe his name was Gary Johnson, was working in cell block number four to remove a 140-year-old lock from the cell door. He suddenly was overcome by some kind of force that seemed to possess his body. He was unable to move. It was similar to sleep paralysis, only the locksmith had not been sleeping. Legend has it that when the locksmith removed the lock, he opened a gateway for spirits to come through, almost as if the spirits of the jail had been locked up here. The negative energy pulled the locksmith toward it. He claimed to see hundreds of distorted forms and faces filled with anguish on a cell wall. Every time he recalled the experience, he shuddered. You might remember that we touched on a haunting involving El Capone at Eastern State in our St. Valentine's Massacre episode, which was number 28. Other inmates said that they could hear Capone screaming at somebody named Jimmy in his cell to go away and leave him alone. He was tormented every night. The prisoners assumed he was talking to the ghost of James Clark, a man who he murdered at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929. James Clark was the brother-in-law of Bugs Moran. Cell Block 12 has disembodied voices that echo through the block, and occasionally cackling is heard. On the third floor of that same block, a tour guide claims that the cell doors were closed one minute and then wide open the next minute. Cell Block 6 features several shadowy figures that dart along the walls. Wails, whispers, and footsteps are heard in many areas, and there's never anyone there to make the sounds. There's a guard tower that has a shadowy figure visible inside of it on occasion. Eastern State has seen much pain and loneliness in its time. Are the spirits of former inmates still here in the afterlife? Are there dark and evil entities within the walls of the jail? Is Eastern State Penitentiary haunted? That is for you to decide. And they do offer tours there, so if you check out their official website. You can get more information on that. Definitely a place I would like to visit someday, Denise. We were in Philadelphia, but we weren't there long enough to visit this no, location. We on our next show, we are going to feature, I believe this is the first battleship that we've done. Very cool. The USS Lexington is a battleship, and apparently... It's haunted. So we're going to be covering that on our next episode. That'll be very cool. And we have had quite a few people requesting battleships. So this will get us started down that road. We'll have more to come in the future, obviously. Oh, no, Diane, you sunk my battleship. Oh, you know, what's really cool, Denise. I saw, uh, was it last week or the week mm -hmm. before? They have a Pirates of the Caribbean battleship. Exactly. That one looks very cool. And the ships are even, they're not just like named Pirates of the Caribbean battleship with the same ships that we had growing up. They're actually pirate ships. Yes, That's they cool. are. Something Phil will definitely want for Christmas this year, I'm, I'm assuming. We do have some reviews to share with everybody. We'll start with the worst one first. We got a three-star review from Miss Goodwines. The listener messages are excessive. The first 10 plus minutes are all reading listener messages. It's making me nuts. 
So, Denise, apparently we are driving this person crazy. Sort of like solitary confinement for the theater of the mind. <laughs> Indeed. I don't want to have to fast forward through the first quarter of each episode, especially since I usually listen to podcasts while I drive. The rest of the podcast is fantastic, though. Please omit the reviews or put them at the end of each episode so I can get to the good stuff faster. Well, we did move the reviews to the end. The listener messages are going absolutely nowhere. And some of those are pretty cool because they people are sharing their haunted experiences at some of the locations we've talked about. So... I enjoy that. I know that our listeners enjoy hearing themselves being talked about on the show. And we have a community here. So if you don't want to be a part of the community, I'm sorry, but uh, we won't be changing that. Five stars from Ms. Sullivan. Interesting yet creepy. I just discovered this podcast and it's amazing. Hope to meet these ladies someday. Well, we'd love to meet you as well. And Umi11, I hope I said that right. Five stars, amazing. I love this combo of my love of history and the paranormal. The hosts are wonderful, and I look forward to every new podcast. Well, thank you, Umi. We appreciate that. I like that name, too. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Megan Gregg. Thank you. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch. Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, One Podcast at a Time. Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.